Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. Can one man's life be defined by a word? Can a podcast be defined by one episode? I sure hope not. As we finish up the sacred list for Zach on Film, it's Citizen Kane. I don't know if this is a sacred list. It's not sacred? No. I, 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 I know it's not because it's a piece of paper I got when I was a sophomore in college. <laughs> yes. and I know. But some people, uh, that more we've talked about it, it's become like this almost MacGuffin well, thing that we have. Yeah, yeah. Well, except that the Mac- MacGuffin's revealed. Here's, what, here's the thing. Yeah. If you like The Simpsons, if you like Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you like film noir, if you like, uh, if you like, um, you know, C. Montgomery Burns, if you like Steven Spielberg's work, if you like things that Alfred Hitchcock has done, all of these films owe their thanks to Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah. And I know we looked at, in this series, I know we looked at movies before this. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know we looked at a lot of great movies after this, but if I were to say that there is one defining film in all of time that totally radically changed the way we look at film and the way that we approach film and the way that we present film and the way that we tell stories, it is Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. I mean, change the language of visually. Well, I mean, of stuff, uh, man, there then... are so many. I mean, there are so many avenues we can go down. And there have been books written on Citizen Kane. Uh, Peter Brodonovich has done an intensive interview with Orson Welles back, I want to say, in the um, early 80s before he died. There's a biography on on Orson Welles Mm -hmm. that touches on a lot of stuff about Citizen Kane. It is a deeply involved movie that has a lot of paths when you look at it from behind the scenes. But you had Mm -hmm. mentioned the way that we tell a story visually. Yeah. And the one that I keep bringing up to people mm-hmm. is that, especially to students, and this yeah. is this is part of the, where this discussion came in. Oh, do you like Animaniacs? Do you sure. like the cartoon Actually, show I Animaniacs? I've watched it maybe a couple of episodes when I was little. Or it's Citizen Kane. Yeah. Influenced by Citizen Kane. In fact, I watched the very first Animaniacs uh, episode the other day. It was on uh, Hulu, Netflix, one of those things mm-hmm. my kids were watching. And the opening reel was News on the March, which is, of course... <laughs> A spoof of the Time uh, Time Marches right. On film series. But News on the March is a direct reference to Citizen Kane and, and him spoofing media mm. and making fun of media, and especially yeah. Time, with, with, with their newsreels. Uh, if you know Pinky and the Brain, Pinky looks like Orson Welles, talks like mm-hmm. Orson Welles. Or not Pinky, the Brain, I'm sorry. Um, and has an Orwellian complex about wanting to take over the world. Mm-hmm. I always tell students that the thing that infuriates me the most is that everything is shot with the camera on your shoulder, Mm -hmm. right? Everything's at that eye level, which is fine because that's how each of us view the world. But you're taller than I am. Mm -hmm. So your perspective on the world is six inches. What are you? Six, five, six, two, six, two. Uh, Your view on the world is at least four inches taller than (laughs) it's probably six inches taller than mine. 
So you get to see the little bit of dust that I missed, right? Mm-hmm. You get to see the world from four inches higher or six inches higher than what I see the world. My kids see the world at a very, very different angle because their eye level is different mm-hmm. and changed and their perspective is changed. Unfortunately, because of camera technology at the time, you could only get the camera down low enough at a certain level, which right. was maybe hip height. I mean, we're talking about film cameras that are not yes. the Sony camcorder you can go right. grab at Walmart. We're right. talking big pieces of machinery. And, you know, one of, the, one of the first projects I had students do in video production was go out and shoot 20 shots of a park bench, meaning that you had, to move that, you had to move that camera around at different angles and experiment to see how do you get 20 shots of a park bench. Because mm-hmm. nine times out of ten the average to poor student would come back with the same wide shot at the same eye height and just circle around the camera. Orson Welles didn't want to do that. He thought that film should be moved away from theater. And in theater, you have these flats that extend up past the height of the curtain, and there's nothing above those flats. There's nothing above that scenery. And and Orson Welles is a big theater guy. He loved theater. That's why he agreed to come to Hollywood, was because he was trying to get money to finance his his theater group. I mean, he pulled a lot of people from the theater for this film. Yes. And, uh, I mean, speaking of, like, film, or theater, we've looked at a lot of films that are shot as if they were a musical. Yes, Um, Or, I mean, uh, Duck Soup, Singing in the Rain, Mm -hmm. Things like that, all shot as if they were a play. But Orson Welles said, in order to convey the magnitude and the presence of Kane, mm-hmm. I need to shoot at a low angle. I need to see the ceiling in the shot. That's going to make Kane look bigger on the screen. Well, we can't get the camera down that low. What do you mean you can't get the camera down? I think, I don't know Welles, and I've never read his biography. I'd lo- I, I probably need to. But I think he's somebody that doesn't take no for an answer. I think, he, mm. you know, at least early in his career, yeah. he didn't take no for an answer. And he's like, I don't want to hear that. Dig a hole in the studio floor. So they've yeah. got this huge studio <laughs> floor with concrete floor. And I can just imagine an executive running downstairs because Wells has lost his mind and he's got somebody in there with a jackhammer drilling mm-hmm. a hole into the floor so that they can get the camera yeah. low enough to shoot up to convey the presence of these characters and... Now we have to spend money for a ceiling? Yeah. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> I mean, those are just some of the things that Wells did that were technical advancements. Yeah. Now, there was another one where um, when they're interviewing uh, his, his ex-wife and they mm. go through the window down into her in the bar crying and everything. Yeah. Where it goes from an outside shot to an inside shot. That, that up until just a few years ago, people were still scratching right. their head on how did he do that? I remember, because uh, the first time I watched this film... It was in the intro to motion pictures class that's oh, not yeah. talking about it. It's mm-hmm. one of those genetic classes. Yeah. And we watched this, and I, I came into your office. I go, Steven, how did they shoot this shot? Yeah. And you're like, no one knows. Yeah, no one knows. <laughs> but I think someone just in the last, um, I want to say in the last two years, someone has gone through and broken down how they could have done that shot mm-hmm. using that technology of the day. And a, and a lot of it has to do with some rotating sets and mirrors Oh, really? um, into the into the place, yeah, uh, where you have like a little miniature with a forced perspective mirror on the inside of mm. what's inside the cafe, which is really off to the side, and you just kind of tilt that entire set up towards the camera, and it looks like the camera's swooping down into it. Oh my gosh! And then what you're really shooting <laughs> is a mirror. He did a lot of stuff with mirrors to get uh, extra depth into really? the shot. I mean, if and here's the other thing, Wells 
you can go and find actual sketches that Wells did, mm. uh, not storyboards, but sketches of the way he th- saw the light. And it's really, really, it's really mesmerizing to see how he understood how contrast and lighting and shadow created depth in images. So that when you see Kane in Xanadu uh, talking to his wife who's doing puzzles in front of a giant fireplace, uh, that's all done with light and shadow to convey that extreme distance. And he just really understood that uh, and and really used it to his advantage. Now, of course, there are some some mistakes uh, during the production. And we'll get into the uh, how did Wells start doing this. But when he finally got a hold of the story that he wanted to do, he had convinced the studio because the studio is like, come on, man, you're kind of wasting time. Mm-hmm. Get busy. He started doing a lot of test shots. A lot of those test mm-hmm. shots ended up in the film. Um, I think one of those test shots that ended up in the film, you really don't ever notice it unless you're really paying attention. There's a scene where they're supposed to be driving down to the beach for the picnic and Wells and his wife are in the car mm-hmm. or Kane and his wife are in the car. And behind him is a projection, rear projection. But it's like from King Kong. And so you see dinosaurs. There's a oh, dinosaur really? flying around in the background and, and doing some crazy stuff, which is just <laughs> weird. Now, uh, it seems like a gaff or a goof. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, Kane was pretty rich. Yeah, sure. Maybe he, uh, maybe he could afford to get some dinosaurs <laughs> on his. On Started from Jurassic Park. Yeah. So it, yeah, I mean, just from the technical standpoint, not even on, not even going into the editing. The editing itself is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in the way that he shot stuff, changed how we how we do film today i mean yeah. like like i said with the with the with the way he did contrast and lighting and everything a lot of film noir techniques owe are credited toward towards uh, wells's work in citizen kane it's such a uh, I, I i watched no i didn't watch any of this film with aubrey she fell uh, right asleep oh, when it, i started watching this here's but, the other thing this film is boring i mean yeah, it really is boring. boring it's a pretty boring film uh but i was trying to describe to her uh, why Citizen Kane is so important. And I realized it's such a film nerd thing to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is the first movie that ever showed ceilings. Yeah, yeah. Like, they dug a hole in the ground. Like, yeah. no one gives a crap. Well, but also- But it's so, I'm like, it's so important yeah. to what in um, pre-Zach on film, it's not something, uh, if you follow along, maybe I would have ever said, like, how important it is that yes. this film happened. Right. But it is like unbelievably uh important. I mean, um just the how big he makes characters look on film mm-hmm. by shooting up. I mean, there's a shot of Kane talking to I don't remember who he's talking to, but is the camera is literally at his foot level. Right. It is shooting all the way right. up to this guy. Yeah. Uh, there's another scene too, and it really kind of shows where Kane starts to lose some of his footing in that in the beginning, he's very close to the camera and we see this, but then because of the long focal length that he uses, his lawyer is like mid, mid foreground, Mm -hmm. but then Kane walks away from the camera and he becomes smaller in the frame. And so suddenly he has lost a lot of power and his lawyer Mm -hmm. has a lot more power in the scene. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really dynamic. And then of course, uh, my favorite scene to show about editing and how you can do time compression is the scene where uh, Kane and his wife are having breakfast 
and you see oh, them at the very yes. beginning of their relationship. They're very much in love and they very much uh, want to be around one another and they start off at a very small table. And then as the two have a conversation and the camera starts whirling around, uh, the tables, you know, they start to have become at odds with one another uh, to the point where she's reading another paper, uh, the competitor's paper at the breakfast table when he's right there and they're having arguments. And finally you pull out and you reveal that they're now sitting at a super long table opposite sides of the screen from one another and they hate one another mm-hmm. or they're very much in dislike with one mm-hmm. another. And just in that simple, I, I bet it's like two and a half minutes, maybe. Oh, maybe if that maybe in that two and a half minutes. Wells doesn't, or, yeah. Wells does not have to show Kane and his first wife, um, fighting and arguing, doing all these things very subtly. He just says, look how far apart they've come mm-hmm. in the 20 years that they've been married or however long they've been married at that point in, in the movie. It's just brilliant. And I so love good. that all the time and, and see that all the time. And wow. And <laughs> if you watch this, his sense of staging yes. is so amazing. Yes. How foreground, background, and mm-hmm. mid ground is just always just perfect. Everyone mm-hmm. is framed just so nice. The beginning scene of of Kane as a small boy, right? When uh, what's his lawyer face is coming yep. to get him? Mm-hmm. It's such a marvelous scene with his his mom like just smack up in the yep. camera, and then Kane's off through a window, yeah, through a window, playing, playing out in the, snow, in the snow, and then the lawyers in between. Yes. Them. yeah, it's just it's a. I, I'm often at a loss for words when I talk about Citizen Kane because even though it's a long movie and even though it can be very, very boring, there's almost not a single frame that is um, too long or, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's not too long of a movie. It has everything that you need in it to really understand how Kane, what his motives were, what drove him, what eventually caused him to, to fall uh, into ruin mm. Um and it is just this fascinating look at the rise of from poverty to the height of of everything you could want and then tumbling back down mm-hmm. again uh to where his dying and this is you know the after the um you know the the first shot is of course rosebud the very famous line yeah. rosebud and then of course the snowball falls and breaks and the nurse walks in and of course that's also one of the very first continuity questions that people say saying well how do we know he said rosebud if no one else was in the room yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, uh but then that kicks off the newsreel, and then we get at the end of the newsreel, and the person who – the producer, I guess, of the newsreel is like, yeah, yeah, that tells us everything we know about Kane, mm-hmm. but what do we really know about Kane, and what is this rosebud? Mm-hmm. And then we're introduced to the reporter who's going around and doing all these interviews, and we never, ever see him in the light. He is always silhouetted throughout the entire movie. Oh, yeah, that's true. Even at the end when he's yeah. asking, when they're throwing stuff in the trash and the rubble and he's touring the house one last time, never see him in the light, which is, you know, makes him a very much anonymous person, very much like yeah. the audience in telling the story. You're right. Wells is an expert at staging, an expert at understand lighting. I think a lot of this comes from his theater experience mm-hmm. and love of theater. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, um, throughout the... Uh, the telling of the story, you even get a very sophisticated form of telling it because yes. it's non it's nonlinear. non-linear, very important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nonlinear. We show at least one scene twice with his uh, second wife trying right. to learn how to sing, and right. we get we get like the whole played over again. Yeah, uh, but we're seeing so it from two different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's really 
uh, a modern way to tell it, even though people... I mean, if this was in color, yes. and this was in uh, a wider screen format, yes. uh, I think... I mean, this is a movie yes. that people wouldn't be unaccustomed to seeing coming out uh, in the theater nowadays. But since it is 1941, it's black and black and white, and it's a square format. Uh, I mean, it's a hurdle for people to jump um, if they're if they're just like browsing, I don't know, iTunes or Amazon or whatever to to get on. They've probably heard about Citizen Kane, right? And it's a jump, but it's a very sophisticated movie. Oh yeah, it, it I mean, feels you new. watch you watch these uh, MTV behind the behind the music you mm-hmm. know documentaries about these people, or even if you watch a documentary, um, you know that has any kind of reenactment. That's kind of what Citizen Kane is. It's one yeah. of these very first, you know, nonlinear documentary type movies, the mockumentary mm. of uh, of uh, Charles Foster Kane. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's right. It's it's really well done that way. Yeah. And what I actually thought about watching this is that, um, you know, we're everything that we're seeing is from not Kane's point of view. Yes, there's which is not very a single thing here that's yeah. Kane's point of view. It's right? all people giving their own experience of interacting with him. Yeah. So who knows if we're actually getting the right story or not. Right. Because a story can be told 15 different ways, right? I mean, we can all go and witness an event or be part of an event Mm -hmm. and you're going to see it differently from, you know, like when I give a lecture in class, you're going to view it differently than another student's going to view it differently or even just going and seeing a movie. Mm -hmm. We're each going to come away with a different experience. And if you were to say, you know, Zach, tell me the story of the princess bride you're going to have a different way of telling that story than perhaps I do. And we could try to be as factually correct as we could. Yeah. And from the reporter's standpoint, he's going to say, well, these facts line up in the story that Stephen and Zach told. Mm. So that must be true. But then there's this weird stuff about how she was a great singer and how she was a terrible singer and and all these things that don't line up, but they do sensationalize the story of, of mm. Kane. So let's throw it in there anyway. Right, right. So I, I do find that. I do find that interesting. Yeah, good observation. What else? What else you got? You. Where where else you want to talk about? Um I mean so the first thing I actually did, um, there's a site I've been going to recently called Cinephilia and Beyond. Mm-hmm. They just posted a really big article about Citizen Kane. Oh really? In the, interesting. Um so I actually started reading the second final script for Citizen Kane. They have mm-hmm. it, they have it up online, it's all scanned and everything. It's yeah. the last script that he revised before this, the shooting. Right. Like the revisions on this one made the shooting script. So it's really interesting to go through. Um, and like we talked about the news thing. And he's like, yeah, I want this to feel exactly like yeah. um, the newsies that you would see at a mm-hmm. film. I want, mm-hmm. We're going to go back and shoot all of Xanadu's set pieces just like a news yep. organization would. And it's really, it's really fascinating just to read it. And it's really interesting. And uh, um, there's a lot of... Um, Interviews with people, and I think I think maybe one of the ones you mentioned is up there posted. It's Probably. a whole long, detailed yeah, yeah. about why Citizen Kane is important, right? And the great things behind and it. And this is where at Cinephilia? Uh, Cinephilia and Beyond. Okay, it's like right on the front page. So the other thing to to kind of point out is that um, Orson Welles was in New York, and so let's kind of start with how did Welles get out to to California mm-hmm. and do all this stuff. Orson Welles started in New York and, and even in the 1930s, early 1930s, he was being wooed by Hollywood to come out and run uh, the story development team or to come out and, and do this. And he really didn't want to do any of that stuff with Hollywood because he had this love 
of theater. And he had his own theater company, the Mercury Theater is its own production company. The Mercury Theater on the air was the CBS uh, version of that where they would uh, do live plays. Mm. Uh, but he was working with John Hausman and a bunch of other people in producing uh, producing uh, theatrical stuff, some really good stuff, some really crazy stuff. And, um, of course, then by uh, 1938, he did the War of the Worlds broadcast. Right. And suddenly Hollywood became a very much more more enamored than ever with Orson Welles and his ability to capture audiences' attention. And very much like other things that are happening in the news right now, if he's the hot new thing, mm-hmm. we must have him and we will do whatever it takes to get him. At the very same time, Wells's theater group had two disasters of theatrical releases, and he was very much in debt uh, to the theater company mm-hmm. and wanted to make sure that it survived. And so then RKO came along and said, hey, we're going to give you this sweetheart of a deal. You come and work for us for two films, guaranteed. And if you read the contract, it is... It is crazy ridiculous. They gave Wells basically anything he wants. Really? Things that were unheard of at the, t- at, of the time that were in this contract. Wells could shoot anything that he wanted. He could tell any story that he wanted. He had final say on the film. He had final nice. cut, which means the studio couldn't be involved in anything. Mm-hmm. It was written into the contract that he didn't have to show the studio anything until he was ready to show it to them. Wow. Meaning he could have shot the entire film and when it was finished, sat them down and said, here's my film. There it is. <laughs> uh, just so many unprecedented things because people wanted Wells that much. So he came out to uh, to Hollywood to get a, to get away from New York and the theater life and to try to raise money for the Mercury Theater. And he was kicking around for four months, coming up with idea after idea after idea, and uh, none of them none of them were working for him. And so that's when he ran into Herman Mankiewicz or heard about Her- Herman Mankiewicz, who actually came up with this story of uh, John Q. Public or whatever the uh, John Q. Citizen, I think, was the original or John Citizen American. I forget what it was, um, the original title of it. Um, and working with Mankiewicz, they decided, hey, we can go ahead and, and uh, do this together. Originally, the contract with RKO said that Wells would direct and write these two movies. Mm-hmm. And Wells was concerned that if Mankiewicz's name appeared as the script writer, that it would give RKO a reason to break the contract. And mm-hmm. of course, Wells talked with lawyers and they're like, no, 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 it's, it's fine. No problem. So uh, Mankiewicz got writing credit. Uh, Wells got uh, credit as well for the writer, even though uh, Mankiewicz turned in like a 300 page screenplay right Ooh. away. Uh, and then Wells added to it and revised it, and they worked together on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems to be more of Mankiewicz uh, uh, as the as the main idea behind uh, Citizen Kane, and then Wells throwing his bravado on on top mm-hmm. of that. More on Mankiewicz in a minute, especially when we get to the topic of what is Rosebud and what does it represent. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how they they got started on that. And uh, as I said earlier, Wells was doing a lot of test shots, mm-hmm. which. Um, later ended up in the film so that when he could talk to reporters, he's like, Oh yeah, we're a month ahead of schedule on our film. <laughs> even though they hadn't officially gone into a production yet, he hired all of his mercury theater friends, mm-hmm. actors, uh, people to come out and, and perform in the movie. And so really he had one of the sweetest deals on the planet. And I don't think you're going to find another deal as sweet since. No, I mean, final cut. On that is a, a big deal. It's a huge deal. I and mean, that's we talked about, I mean like, uh, Brazil last mm-hmm. week. I mean, uh, Terry Gilliam didn't really get final cut on that thing. That's why right. there's so many 
different versions of that <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in Final Cut nowadays is uh, almost impossible if if you're actually pushing uh, the rating system, right? Because um, if you have a deal with I don't know DreamWorks or something, I don't know DreamWorks, yeah, uh, and you're pushing NC17 rating, right. they're like. Uh, you're gonna cut like yeah. whoa! I have I have Final Cut. Yeah, uh, they're not gonna give you that, especially no. if you're making films. No, no, of that no, nature. and that's why it's so rare to see that today. There are a yeah. few directors that can command that, uh, but it is fairly rare. I mean, mm-hmm. George Lucas could obviously do it because it's his. It was his own Lucasfilm production company, yeah. right? <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's it's super super rare to see that happen, um, especially in light of what's going on today. Mm-hmm. And because Citizen Kane was a very controversial film, we'll also cover the controversy coming up a little bit when we talk about Rosebud. Um, what ended up happening that really disillusioned Wells from working in Hollywood for many, many years was the fact that when in his second film, Archeo did break the uh, final cut part oh. of his contract and edit it without his approval. And so he stormed mm. off and left Hollywood. He went and did Europe. He, he's done a bunch of, you know, Wells has done a bunch of films and a bunch mm-hmm. of work. It's not just Citizen Kane and the, um, the Magnificent Ambersons or uh, whatever it is. Um, after that, um, you know, he did a lot of, of small films and television and all that stuff afterwards. Um, but uh, this may have been, after War of the Worlds, this may have been the the height of his career. Yeah. Uh, really. I mean, and to think about, and this is the other kind of scary thing if we think about Citizen Kane as the height of Wells' career. Wells was probably 30, maybe, I want to say, uh, at the time of, of this release. Let's look here. So we're looking at 1939. He was born in 1950. Yes, 1915. So yeah, he would have been about 2530 uh, when this movie was being made. 38. So yeah, ooh, even younger than that. 38 from 15. What is that? 38. Oh, 41. I'm sorry. 41 yeah, from 41. 15. Um, so yeah, that's six. Uh, 26. 26. Is that right? right. Yeah, 26. 26, 26 years old. You have peaked. One, two, three years from now, Zach. Yeah. Your career peaks. And Sad. it's all down <laughs> from there. I mean, it's like the Beatles. The Beatles like did all their records like in their early 20s. Yeah. That, that's one of those facts. It's like, oh, man, I haven't done like, anything with my life. I don't know. That, that would depressing. be the weird thing. And that, of course, some people say that what Orson Welles was really doing in Citizen Kane was telling his own biography. Cause there was a lot of similarities between Charles Foster mm-hmm. Kane and Orson Welles. The fact that Welles was sent off to go study elsewhere, uh, just like Charles Foster Kane, mm-hmm. that, uh, Kane peaked early in his career and then, and then tumbled that, uh, you know, just so many different things in here, mm-hmm. um, that people will say, Oh, well, Welles was doing an unintentional biography of his life. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, speculation about subject matter all throughout this film um, that kind of put it in trouble first because of, yeah. of the person who thought the film was about him. Yeah, and then so there are a lot of other people besides Wells, or three other people, that we could point to that say, here's where Wells and Mankiewicz drew their inspiration to create Charles Foster Kane. Mm-hmm. And the uh, one of them is Harold McCormick. The other was Samuel Insull. Those two are fine. You know, um, I, I think it was... I forget which one had a mistress that he built the theater for and she was a terrible opera singer and that kind of stuff. So that could have been from him. Um, But the one most people point to as a direct 
reference for Citizen Kane is William Randolph Hearst. Mm. William Randolph Hearst had a very blessed life, a very touched life, uh, that you can track all these points in the movie that mirror what was going on with Hearst. Uh, Kane had a newspaper empire, a media empire that could control and do everything. Hearst is really almost the father, the mm-hmm. grandfather of, of yellow journalism and bad journalism and being able to manipulate the media uh, to do whatever you want. There's a line in, in Kane where um, one of uh, one of his reporters went down to Cuba and said, well, there's no war going on. Mm-hmm. And Kane says, I will, you give me some information and I'll make up the war and it will be going on. And so there's this implication that, Kane started the the um, which one was it the Cuban American War or whatever in in with Teddy Roosevelt oh, uh, yeah, San Juan Hill yeah. all that stuff um, and there have been some comparisons to Hearst doing uh, that same thing and it's really fascinating if you look at William Randolph Hearst and you look at Citizen Kane and see where things line up this is where Mankiewicz comes back into the story and where controversy arises and um, this idea of Rosebud yeah so. Herman Mankiewicz was kind of notorious in Hollywood. Um, he kind of knew everybody and was in these social circles and when, then would get kicked out of these social circles. Mm-hmm. He was oftentimes a drunk, but he was very super charming. Um, in, in this interview with Peter Brogdanovich, uh, Wells said, nobody was more miserable, more bitter and funnier than Mankiewicz, a perfect monument of self-destruction. But you know, <laughs> when the bitterness wasn't focused straight at you, he was the best company in the world. So... When it comes to this to this rosebud issue, um, we know spoiler if you haven't seen the film, but come on, um, <laughs> we know that in the end, Wells or sorry, Kane says rosebud, and at the end of the film, we find out that rosebud is his sled. And you know, today's audience, I, even back then, audience, I think yeah. would say rosebud's a sled. That's really stupid. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, but this idea from rosebud, there's there's two stories that you can believe. Um, the first is that when Mankiewicz was a young child, he went to the library on his bike Mm -hmm. and parked his bike outside, went into the library. And while he was in the library, his bike was stolen. Mm. And as a punishment, his parents never replaced that bicycle. And as it's told, even well on into his years, he still felt regret about losing that bicycle (laughs) in in if in that light, in the movie uh, Citizen Kane, Kane by saying Rosebud, even though he has the sled, is really saying I've lost my childhood. I've yeah. I for, I want to go back to my innocence. I want to go back to a simpler time, mm-hmm. and I kind of wish I had that all back, but I right. don't. And so, from that story point of view, Rosebud is just this fondness for things that are have escaped yeah. us from our like, from our younger years that we wish we could have right. back. Uh, as uh... Um, he gained everything, yes. but didn't get to do the one thing he wanted, which was probably just to, you know, be the kid and just right. grow up and not yeah, and be shoved off to a bank. Yeah, because that's exactly, I mean, uh, Charles Foster Kane, he's living up in Alaska or wherever the heck he's living. His, his father struck the gold ore yeah. and, and, or the property that they owned had struck the gold ore and the banker comes and says, hey, uh, this boy's rich. He shouldn't be out here in the cabin in the middle of the winter. We should whisk him off and get him educated and train him properly. Mm-hmm. And he's literally we see in that one shot where he's crying for his mother as he's being shoved into the, uh, to the carriage and carted away. And that is, a, that is innocence lost. Yeah. And Rosebud very easily can represent innocence lost. Yeah. Right. Um, William Randolph Hearst hated Mankiewicz. 
apparently they bump into each other in a couple of parties Mm -hmm. and just did not get along. So the other rumor, which is a very popular tale, (laughs) is that Rosebud, uh, so Hearst had many mistresses as well. Okay. uh, Just like uh, Kane had many mistresses as well. Mm -hmm. And the story goes around that uh, Hearst had a uh, little pet name for one of his mistresses, Clitoris, Hmm. called Rosebud. (laughs) What a weird name. (laughs) Hey. How many different names do you have for your wiener, man? You know, just one. Oh. Jackhammer. <laughs> well, okay, see? So, um... Contact. <laughs> okay, so, I want that camera to get down. So, in the story of Rosebud represents a personal private part, it's an inside joke. Yeah. And really, Mankiewicz, however he, he found out about this and sharing it with Wells, um really decided to stick it to Hearst because if this is mirroring Hearst's life and the fact that uh, Kane was not a very good journalist and was doing sensationalism and doing all these things that, that mm. Hearst didn't want and rumor is circulating that this is the, this is the deal, kind of like another celebrity who's in hot water over sexual stuff, um, you want to shut that stuff down. Mm. And Hearst used his power to really scandalize Wells and to scandalize the production, to threaten RKO and do everything in its power. In fact, um, who was the um, who was one of uh, Hearst's main people? What was her name Hetty Hetty Hooper? I think is is er, oh, is her right. name. Yeah, Hetty Hooper. Um, he would. She was this voice of. She was essentially the. Uh, gossip columnist for oh, okay. radio stations mm-hmm. uh, for the Hearst radio stations and she would go on or write on, in the Hollywood Reporter or wherever and just lambast this movie um, to no end and discredit it and, and try to put it down and there's all these non-Hearst papers and, and media outlets that were like well, I don't know what's going on <laughs> Hearst would not let this movie be shown in any of his in any of his theaters mm-hmm. that he owned refused to and I don't remember, the, and I don't know if this is entirely true, but at one point, I think the threat was made against all of the studios in Hollywood that if you don't do something about this RKO, I think it's 281 production, all the studios are going to suffer. And so at one point, all the studios kind of tried to gang up on RKO to say, we want to buy this film so that we can shelve it, or we're going to mm-hmm. put pressure on you to, to, to go away with this. Um, so there was a lot of pressure not to release this film. RKO said, we're going to do it anyway. You know, <laughs> screw you guys. Um, so there was a smear campaign against this movie mm-hmm. from, from early on, from the moment that people kind of knew what it was about and who it might be mocking. And even this wild rumor about what, I mean, there were no, imp- I mean, certainly the newspapers today, uh, what's his name? Perez Hilton. Yeah. Would have splashed this oh, all gosh, over all about over exactly what Rosebud meant. Yeah. And it- People may have been a little bit more classy back then, but certainly in the industry, people, people may have been going, hey, you know, Rosebud really is. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then people looking at Hearst differently at parties and, and doing these kinds of things and kind of an embarrassment. Yeah. And nobody wants that. I mean, there. if that story's true, it's kind of amazing and almost like the greatest like frat boy move to yeah, ever kind of, yeah, be yeah. on film. That would be something you would expect. I don't know. To be like. In Animal House, 
Yeah. Like they they got some really lewd secret thing from an exec of of uh, of a high power person into a film, and everyone thinks it's this huge monumental yeah uh, uh, point of a film. But they know uh, the people that made the film that it is just this really uh, snick worthy type of yeah, moment, yeah, yeah. like ah, and the guy yeah. that watched you can just ma- imagine his like jaw just dropping yeah. if that actually happened. Yeah, which so, is amazing. You know, Hearst bans all RKO coverage. Mm-hmm. Doesn't allow them to run ads. Doesn't allow any other movies in the theater. So this is kind of a big deal. A lot of pressure, especially in the days of the vertical integration, where the movie was basically shot and on up the board. And if you're RKO, which is kind of an independent, today we would consider an independent mm-hmm. studio group, you're kind of relying on these other theater chains to run your stuff. And if the theater chain says, for example, today, if AMC said we're not running your movie, that could be a Big hit Big. to your to your bottom line, yeah. And so I've really got to give credit to RKO. I don't know who who the person was that basically said, "There's enough controversy around this. Let's just run this." Mm-hmm. And and did I mean the, when the movie came out, um, it did okay. It's only years later that it really, when it started airing on TV, the people really understood what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of there's a really great documentary that I've seen called "The Battle Over Citizen Kane." which lays everything out, especially in in how Hearst was involved in this. It's really good. Mm -hmm. The other one is kind of a, um, it came out in the same year as the Battle Over Citizen Kane, and it's called RKO 281, I think, because that was the production number uh, for this. Um, Let me look it up here. Yeah, RKO 281. It's a TV movie uh, that came out in the same year as that. And it looks, it's a fictionalized version of what was going on mm-hmm. uh, in that, in that same thing. Um, and then I think the battle over Citizen Kane was, I want to say is a, well, it was a, it was a documentary that was released. I remember seeing both of them in the same year. Just a fascinating thing to go get a, a better look at this. Because again, Citizen Kane is so deep that yes. we can't even scratch the surface on this. Do you have a different idea besides the, the sexual part and the <laughs> loss of innocence that, that Rosebud might represent? You know, no, because I I personally really just enjoy the loss of innocence thing because I think that final shot of the sled burning and you see the lacquer yeah, yeah. just like rippling off yeah. the sled is just so perfect and it's such a good moment because that scene at the beginning of the film when he's playing out in the snow is so good. It's almost it's almost underplayed. As in, you should just forget about it because we have these huge yeah. other monumental scenes coming up where we do crazy things with the camera, or you know, we um, uh, just things that it's just almost like a throwaway scene. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you get back to the end of the film, back to the end of the film, when you get to the end of the film, uh, it just points to the fact that yes, he got all of this. And he's never really been a happy man. And, right. I mean, that right. could be contributed all the way back to he was forced to mm-hmm. leave his parents who didn't want him, essentially, right. to go and try to become mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a successful city folk or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So maybe fortune and glory is not all that it's cracked up to be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I think, was it Jim Carrey? Has a quote saying that he wishes everyone could have anything they ever wanted, so they realize that's not it. It won't fulfill you, right, something right. like that. Yeah, 
and I, yeah, I really feel bad for for Orson Welles. I mean, as good of a career that, as he had, and the things that happened to him, I think he went into a big depression at one point. Really? That's why he put on all the weight. He just couldn't mm-hmm. stop eating. He was so depressed, and that's why he ballooned up. Yeah, I mean, when you watch the Brogdanovich interviews, he's just massive. I don't want to say he weighed 800 pounds, but he he was the big. He, he was big. Was not the like the felt weight he was. No, in no, this no, movie. no, no. I mean, if you look at Orson Welles um, as a younger man in 1936, and the the young pictures that you see of him, mm-hmm. and then you look at him when he was doing his wine commercials in the 80s, no, yeah. you don't know that it's the same man. You recognize the voice. I, I guess I've kind of gone through some of the same things where I was very skinny when I was younger, mm-hmm. and I bumped into someone a few years ago when I was probably at the height of my weight and I went up to him and as an older person, I said, Hey, I, you know, it's good to see you again. He's who are you again? I said, I'm Steven Schleicher. And he's like, no, you're not. You don't, you don't look <laughs> nothing like the person I remember. And that's kind of how Wells yeah. went through too. Yeah. Um, there's in one of these interviews, I, I just found that kind of the quote Wells at one point uh, tells the story that he bumped into w- William Randolph Hearst in the elevator oh, right. and Hearst would not <laughs> acknowledge him during the, uh, during the whole thing. And so when he kind of asked Hearst, hey, do you want to see this film? And Hearst ignored him. And then Hearst was getting off the, uh, off the elevator. Uh, Wells said, I, he says, quote, I said, Charles Foster Kane would have accepted. No reply, <laughs> recalled the director. And Kane would have, you know, that was his style. So he's, you know, almost antagonizing uh-huh. Hearst uh, in a lot of this as well. You know, what is a part of Citizen Kane that really doesn't get talked about as much as the cinematography editing or anything? Is the is the prosthetic makeup work? Makeup that was Wells, a big advance. What yeah. he wore is unbelievable because you would assume from looking at this that the Kane actor that we have in his twenties like when he's running the newspaper is completely different than the man we see out for a large majority of the film as an old. A uh, man who's gained some weight and he's grayed some hair and he's bigger. Uh, you would assume it's a completely different person, but his makeup work, yeah, is so just unreal. Maurice uh, Siderman is the uh, person who did this makeup, mm-hmm. and he used this new uh, compound, this plastic, that would allow the wrinkles to move naturally with the rest of his face. And yeah, there are times when you look at the old old cane and you're just like, uh, something looks. He looks very stiff. Mm-hmm. But still, for 1930, 1941, whenever, uh, this is a big, a big change yeah. in, yeah, 1941, uh, a big change in, in makeup and how it's done. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's another one. What else? What else? We got uh, see we did editing and cinematography and makeup work. Uh, you know, matte paintings, not a, not a bad job there either. <laughs> the matte paintings are great in this. Yeah. Uh, just showing off Xanadu and everything that's yeah. there. Um, you know, I, like I oh, said, you know what reminded me of, uh, I was watching this late last night and there is the moment when their paper kind of hits it big right? and he brings in the band. Yeah. yeah and the dancing girls. Yeah. You know what that just completely reminded me of recently What's that? is the Wolf of Wall Street. Yep. When they, when, uh, they're hitting it big right at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film and they have marching band guys come in and all these like stripper girls, yep. like just this crazy party that's happening yep. in this, this celebratory. It just feels Martin. like, it just so. Uh, Scorsese, Kane. Scorsese says that Citizen Kane was a big influence on really? him. Really? Yeah. And then when I, actually, then you start thinking about Citizen Kane, uh, storyline versus Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's not exactly the same. 
Uh, Close, but there is a lot of similarities that yeah. come in between uh, Susan Cain and Wolf of Wall Street, which is which is really interesting. I'm glad you I noticed that. It. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah. yeah, that's a good that's a good comparison because I don't think I don't think that you could make Citizen Kane today. No, um, in that same way. I mean, it would have to star, you know, like George Clooney or somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, Wolf of Wall Street probably comes very close. It to comes that. close. Uh, I think what it's missing, as in how much Citizen Kane affected the film, was that I don't feel like Scorsese really pushed uh, his visual style of storytelling in Wolf of Wall Street. I think he did some really good things, and I thought that movie was just acted the crap out of by Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the people around him just did an amazing job. Yeah, um, and it, it, it's a good film, um, but not. I mean, if you're shooting for Citizen Kane level of importance, doesn't quite hit up there. Yeah, and and again, I know that for people to sit down and watch Citizen Kane today, they're going to say this is boring. This is very uninteresting. It's so what? What's the message at the end? It's mm-hmm. a sled, bah. Uh, but for people that study film and who people appreciate film and, and want to see where all these vectors converge, to me, Citizen Kane is the movie. Yeah. And, and a lot of people agree. A lot of people put it number well, one. Well, but see, but that's the thing. When I sit in class and I say, how many of you have seen Citizen Kane? Yeah. This is this is why this show got started, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's this is why I saved this movie to the very end. Mm-hmm. When we When I say who has seen Citizen Kane, maybe one person raises their hand because they saw it in... Intro to motion pictures. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Then when I assign the movie and we come back to have a discussion of it and I say, okay, be honest. How many of you actually sat through and watched the entire movie? Maybe three hands go up out of 20 or 50 students in the class. Nobody cares about this movie. And and of course, we've talked about this maybe before you came on or as you were transitioning to come on because I had onto uh, the Major Spoilers podcast because it was my frustration all the time that – we could talk about Citizen Kane and we could talk about the influences in like Raiders of the Lost Ark and the ending sequence where the, the warehouse where they're boxing everything away. That's a reference to oh, yes. uh, Citizen Kane. We can talk mm-hmm. about Pinky and the Brain and how the brain is a reference to uh, Kane. And we can talk – or even Wells. And we can talk about how uh, C. Montgomery Burns is essentially Kane in The Simpsons. Uh, and people just I, – I don't care and they don't mm-hmm. – it's this – do you have a greater appreciation now – after we've been watching all of these films, oh my you go back and you revisit Citizen Kane. Yeah. And you're just like, wow, I get it. Do you, yeah, Have absolutely. you had that moment now? Oh, through watching like, television shows, like sitcom stuff on air right now, mm-hmm. if you want to understand like 80% more jokes on TV, right. you'll watch the movies we watched. Because, right. Because... Uh, I mean, I was watching Brooklyn Nine Nine the other mm-hmm. day, and they threw an Amadeus reference yeah. into an episode like two weeks ago. Uh-huh. Or you watch Community, and if you watch these movies, you'll understand ninety percent of the jokes yeah. in Community, or yeah. any like Family Guy or anything. My, like my that. argument is, if you well, yeah, especially with Family yeah. Guy, because I remember being at the university one day and walking into the room where the students were gathering around the computers, and they were just laughing at this Family Guy bit where here's this fat guy screaming peas, <laughs> and. That's Orson Welles, mm-hmm. uh, the worst part of his life when he's a drunkard and showing up on set just smashed and trying to do a pee commercial. They were laughing at it. They didn't know why. They didn't even know who this guy was. Yeah. But then if you look at, at Orson Welles' life, you're like, oh, that's really sad, but it was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would say the first seven years of The Simpsons are referenced in all the movies that we've watched in mm-hmm. in Zach on film. Yeah. But do you have an appreciation now of the vision 
that it would take to say, let's drill a hole in this floor and put the camera down at oh, that level. Yeah. And, and tor- to you know, have, damn, damn the torpedoes. And- I mean, the only way those decisions happens is it comes from someone outside of the system, right? Right. It, there's someone that has not been making films that comes right. in and says, uh, let me do what I do. And you bring in your ideas from another medium and you start affecting film. Yeah. And that you, uh, I mean, you have to just take the ideas and processes that have been established in film and throw them out the window mm-hmm. to make Citizen Kane and do mm-hmm. something totally revolutionary and not even i mean this is bigger than like visual effects right how big citizen kane is and how much forethought and uh just creativity it would take to make this film it's unbelievable yeah And, and that's why i just really and to just just for rko to just go fine yeah Amid all the controversy among the whole contract deal, among the, in fact, probably not really making a lot of money on the film, Mm -hmm. but just to say, we, and I don't even know if they said this, but they have some amount of trust that Wells knows what he's doing because he's the guy that scared America by saying that the aliens were invading. Mm -hmm. This guy knows how to tell a story. Let's just, let's just give it to him and and see where he goes. Mm -hmm. And he turns in this story that really rocked really rocked history yeah and i don't i wonder you know wells uh was alive after the you know after the resurgence of citizen kane but even if some of the executives and some of the people i wonder what wells's reaction would be like today knowing how much how many people have embraced this film i mean i don't even know if i don't even know if when he died that Citizen Kane was considered one of the greatest films of all time. He may not he may not have known mm-hmm. that. I just wonder what the RKO executives would have thought today if they were to say, "Holy crap, we did all of this." Yeah. This this I can see things from this movie all throughout everything that's done today. This is incredible. I, I just think they would totally lose their minds. Mm. Part of me wants to say they'd break down crying going, "Oh my god, look yeah. what we did." enjoy absolutely could, of course they could be breaking down crying saying oh my god look what we did <laughs> uh in 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 sadness but i just think that it's kind of like if you could go back and tell your 12 year old self hey it's all going to be okay oh sure life's going to be good you're going to be doing all these great things in the future you know would you believe yourself or would you just kick your older self in the nards and say get out of here old man <laughs> yeah. i'm not listening to you anymore. <laughs> um it was nominated for Outstanding Motion Picture. Mm. It's nominated for Best Director, Best Actor, Best Writing for the Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction for Interior Decoration, uh, Best Film Editing, Best Cinematography, Best Music, Best Sound Recording, and it only won one Oscar for the screenplay. Screenplay? Yeah. And that's uh, that Mankiewicz and Orson Welles had to share that that credit. So of all these <laughs> of all these nominations, I mean, today, if a film was nominated in all these categories. People would be like, this is, this, this is The Wolf of Wall Street. This is, yeah. you know, this is one of the greatest films of the year. It needs to be winning. And you see these, these movies win mm-hmm. all these awards. Had to have just been, had to have eaten it well. Yes. That it only won for screenplay. That's, going back and looking at films that, you th- that are so uh, revered and going back and seeing, like, how were they received uh, throughout the awards, and right. they see them not 
really get any recognition at all. Yeah. Uh, through actually winning instead of just being nominated. It's yeah. like almost depressing yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. I think so. And I don't know. Where else do you want to go on that? Because again, there's so, I mean, I don't, I oh, do man, not I think know. that we can contain, I don't think we can have an in-depth discussion on Citizen Kane in just one episode. And I think that no matter where we go, there would still be a million different paths that you could go down mm-hmm. in that. What is your, you know, since this is the, this is the final film of the list. Yeah. What, what do you think, what do you think you've taken away from this entire experience? This has been what, two years of Zach on film? Uh, yeah, yeah. About two years. We started on, uh, just like the regular major spoilers podcast yeah. with like Star Trek or something. So yeah. I think it was just Star like, Trek. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I understand uh, the language of film more mm-hmm. than I ever have. Uh, the different ways that sound and uh, uh, the visuals interact to tell a story. Yeah. Um, like importance of color is mm. such a, mm-hmm. a thing mm-hmm. that um, I know I didn't pick up on earlier because I know I don't remember what it would have been. Um, I think it was. Um, Pulp Fiction. We talked a lot about color. And I just completely mixed just oh, like yeah. all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has been my appreciation for like editing has just like completely changed. Um, cinematography. I like. Uh, I think I appreciate more um, like abstract to a point mm-hmm. of. I appreciate the medium of film more right. than uh, when I first started, and just how can all of this combine to tell a story within a time limit and how can time be manipulated right, right. and stretched and shrunk and right. uh, inverted and just be, be messed around with? Because um, I think um, there's something to say that, you know, films are almost limited because there's a time limit to mm-hmm. it. Unlike a painting or something, mm-hmm. there's a time limit. But uh, through a film, I mean, the creator gets to adjust how we perceive time or right, how right. what's being shown on screen. It's, right. a, it's such an interesting thing, and that when you really dig down to it, there's just so much. What would you have? What would you have done differently in this series in the in this show? <sighs> done differently, um, you know. I think uh, I mean what we talked about off mic every once in a while was that we didn't dive into a lot of foreign stuff. Yeah, we touched on a lot. We. Uh, talked about French New Wave when we talked about Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde, and there was a whole thing that I've gone off and started watching those films. Um, I mean, we did watch. Uh, oh crap! What was the one foreign film we watched with the the children with the neck collars and the and their heads explode when they go off? Oh, uh, Battle Royale! Yeah, Battle Royale. Yeah, we yeah. watched Battle Royale. Um, I think that was something we didn't venture into, um, mainly because the list that we had was not was not yeah it was uh, not foreign as, film. It was like right. an, it was the AFI yeah, it was list. It was American yeah. films. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we put ourselves in that box by the list we're going off of, uh, which was fine. I mean, we talk about some of the we still talk about some of the most influential films of all time. Yeah. Um, so that was something we didn't get into. We so we didn't get to see uh, how other uh, countries mm-hmm. use the art form because mm-hmm. I mean. 
if I mean, if you know anything about art, is that a lot of different countries yeah, tell you they, yeah. they uh, use art in different ways to tell different stories. We, and so we, we kind of talked about that with the Magnificent Seven in how the Seven Samurai oh, yeah. influenced that. And yeah. Even today, there are films, even remakes of the Magnificent Seven. Um, there are even films today that are still being influenced by international yeah. ways of telling stories. The Raid is a great mm-hmm. example of how. Uh, that movie influenced the the dread movie mm. um, going forward. So yeah, I think I, it would be nice to go in and, and look at some more international. But I, movies. I I think the the great thing we did is that uh, when situations like that arose, we certainly discussed it and talked about it and right. gave people a jumping off point mm-hmm. to go and start exploring those things. Like I've been watching um, uh, Jean Luc Godard's films yeah, yeah. on Hulu because if you have a Hulu Plus subscription. Uh, you can watch pretty much all the Criterion films, yep, and for he free. has yeah, it's oh, amazing. Part of your subscription, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, watching those kinds of films is uh, interesting, and just looking at yeah, even new wave stuff is really yeah, good. yeah, even new modern stuff that's coming out of uh, you know France and just other countries mm-hmm. are really interesting. And so uh, while we didn't venture into very many foreign films, I think we've uh, have. Have given people ideas and places they should look and films they should look into about um, what they should be doing. We didn't actually. I don't think we ever did an animated movie. Like no, we didn't. Um, I which is fine. I mean, uh, but I mean, if you wanted to do foreign animated, you could do uh, Miyazaki's Mm -hmm. films. Oh God, we could do a whole series on (laughs) because there are some. I've got the whole Miyazaki collection. Oh, do you? That's imported. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's just freaking wonderful. Yeah. I think for me, going back now, and it really only hit me, I want to say about six months ago, where I was reading an interview with Leonard Malton, and he said that he went to a, he went to go when he was just starting out, he went to go speak to a a class, and they were watching Citizen Kane, but they were only watching it at 20-minute chunks at a time, because that's how long the class was. Oh, yeah. He was really upset, because it's like, you have to experience this whole movie at once, and he said to really appreciate and understand Citizen Kane you need to watch movies in order. You need to watch movies in order that they were released. So oh, yeah. I think going back, one thing that would have been very fascinating to do is start with the silent movies and just work our way mm. numerically forward for each year. And here are the films that came out in that year yeah. from the list and look at the evolution of how film was taking place. Because we would see that I think it might be even more apparent as we jump from you know, like Taxi Driver to Star Wars and yeah. all these things that suddenly it's like, wow, there is something happening in society. There's something that's happening in the way that we're telling stories and, uh, you know, this this experience of movies, the mm-hmm. production of movies that's changing and being able to see that happen yeah. increment by increment, I think would have been probably even more fascinating. Yeah, that, been, was, that was my fault. For that would have been a it. really different uh, way to look at the film because... Uh, you know, I kind of enjoyed, and I think there have been some certainly uh, lights shined on different right, right. areas of film like that. But the the jumping back and forth uh, is interesting because then we land on Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. where we've seen all of the influences from Kane. Right. Where uh, if we would have gone uh, in order, I mean, Citizen Kane would have been almost the first fifteen films because we and we while we watched a lot of early films. Uh, I mean, we watched Birth of a Nation right. and, you know, some Charlie Chaplin stuff and Duck Soup and some things around mm-hmm. there. Uh, Citizen Kane would have been pretty early. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, 
And I mean, it still would have shown now, the nice star thing, could jump, right? But the, uh, how but much it would have. Ended. The nice thing about that would have been, okay, Zach. Notice how everything that we've seen up until here has yeah, been this. Right now, Citizen Kane does this. Now, pay attention to this going forward, yeah. and let's look and see how things mm-hmm. harken back to what what Kane was right, doing. Right. I think that would have been really, and I and I, I'm I'm sorry I didn't find that Malton piece sooner, because I think that's probably the the direction I would have gone mm-hmm. with this show is to say, well, let's watch them in order, and yes, yeah. there's going to be a lot of boring, silent. <laughs> film in 1930s and 40s stuff before we get into quote unquote modern day stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think it may have been a different experience. Yeah. I think it, I think it certainly would have, and it would have been weird for me because, uh, while, um, doing it that way certainly would have had its benefits to get me to a point yeah. where I could go back mm-hmm. to the, you know, the early days in the twenties and the thirties and here, uh, to really appreciate what was happening. Um, like, there was a, I mean, we talk about it, you and I talk about it, there was like a click in my yeah, yeah. shifting of yeah. being able to watch these films. It was probably a year ago. Well, probably a year ago. Almost a year ago. Yeah. yeah. That something shifted, mm-hmm. and like almost the conversations changed right. throughout the podcast, and they right. completely changed to um, way more in-depth discussions on like theory and stuff mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. film. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, so that's... Good. Okay. Uh, so today is uh, December 17th, 2014, the day that we uh, record this last episode. Yeah. It also happens to be the same day that new films are added to the National Registry. Yeah, I saw it today. I got really excited. 2014 National Film Registry. Here are the films that have been added. 13 Likes from 2004. This is by James Benning. I've not seen this movie. Um, then we've got Burt Williams' Lime Killin' Club Field Day from 1913. Uh, it's a stellar cast of African-American performers gathered in the Bronx, New York, to make a feature-length motion picture. The troupe started vaudevillian, uh, starred vaudevillian Burt Williams, the first African-American to headline on Broadway, and the most popular recording artist prior to 1920. That would be interesting hmm. to track down. Yeah. Uh, 1998's The Big Lebowski yeah. makes it on the list. Uh, down Argentine Way, uh, 1940, with Betty Grable. Uh, the Dragon Painter, 1919. Uh, Felicia, nineteen sixty-five, which is a thirteen-minute short subject, mm. uh, marketed as an educational film. Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off from nineteen eighty-six has oh, been added to the one. National Film Registry. Nice. The Gang's All Here from nineteen forty-three. Uh, House of Wax from nineteen fifty-three. I believe that is the uh, the Warner Brothers uh, uh, Vincent Price flick. Uh, I have seen that. Into the Arms of a Stranger: Stories of the uh, uh, Kinder Transport, two thousand. Uh, Little Big Man from 1970. That's uh, Dustin Hoffman oh, yeah. as a 120-year-old man. That yeah. one's interesting, too. Um, uh, John Lasseter's first film, Luxo Jr. from 1986, one of the first 3D animated movies, um, made it into the National mm-hmm. Registry. Uh, Moon, Breath, uh, Moon Breath Beat, 1980. Please Don't Bury Me Alive from 1976. The Power and the Glory from 1933. Uh, Rio Bravo from 1959. That's the Howard Hawks uh, movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Rosemary's Baby from 1968. Um, Ruggles of Red uh, Red Gap from 1935, Saving Private Ryan from 1998, Shoes 1916, State Fair from 1933, Unmasked from 1917. Some older films going in there. Mm-hmm. V minus E plus one 1945. It's a uh, silent 16 millimeter footage that makes up V minus E plus one. Documents the burial of beaten and emaciated Holocaust victims. Uh, found by Allied forces in the Nazi concentration camp uh, in Czechoslovakia. I think I may have seen this movie in high school. Mm. They showed it to us. 
Yeah, I think I, I have seen that one. Um, the Way of Peace from 1947 and Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. That's the Gene Wilder yeah. one from 1971. <laughs> Those are the movies that have been added to the National Film Registry. Yeah. So some new films to watch. Very nice. All right. Well, Zach, it has been a pleasure having you in this uh, it has Zach been on wonderful. Film course. It has been a great time. People are probably freaking out. Um, What's happened to Zach on film? What's going to happen <laughs> next? Uh, so next week, Zach and I are going to come back. This would be like um, New Year's Day or something like that. Uh, we're going to come back with our 10 favorite movies that, that we have watched in 2014. Now, and they yeah. a couple of stipulations on that. The movies could be released at any time. We just finally got around to seeing them in 2014. Yeah. And they can't be any of the films on the Zach on film list because it would just be a repeat of a yeah. lot of the things that we've talked about. So yeah. that's kind of the qualifier. So we'll be back um, next week to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And then we've got four episodes where Zach turns the table on us and we get to watch some films. Right. Have you picked all four of the films yet? I think I have. Do you want to give us a heads up? Um, sure. I just have to remember if I locked them all down. And these okay. might change. Okay. I think there's a there's a fourth spot on the list that I haven't locked down for okay. sure yet. Uh, so we will be looking at uh, The Tree of Life. I did watch that. Yeah? I did watch that for the first time. Okay. Uh, got some things to say All right, it. cool. Uh, then Don John. Okay, I've got it. I haven't watched it yep. yet. And then we're going to watch 12, 12 Years a Slave. Okay. And then right now my fourth film is Her. Mm, but I've I seen haven't. Times but I haven't committed to that completely. I've been really tossing in the air. What I've been. There's a lot of films that I want to talk about. Yeah, but yeah. I've been. I've like have scre- scratches of paper, like detailing <laughs> like what I want to talk about, why we should talk about these. Yeah. yeah. Um. So that's what I'm at right now. Well, I know Matthew has seen her finally. Yeah. I'm not sure if Rodrigo. Has I don't seen know her either. Yet. So. So that's where we're those at are right some, now. Those are four really good. Well, those are three really good films. <laughs> Um, I did watch Tree of Life and it really had me thinking for about a day and a half. And then I saw his trailer for his new film and I kind of have nothing more to to say uh, about that. And and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. And that's something I want to talk about is the Terrence Malick-ness of his films, which is something I've been thinking about in general. Um, which we might actually get into into our thing of like, I'll give you a little preview. Yeah. I saw the the trailer for his new movie, and I said, "Oh, I know exactly what this movie is about without watching it because every single shot in that trailer is in the Tree of Life." Yes, I mean pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean different actors, different different I mean, actors, but it's the exact same feel idea. as Tree of Life, which is. Uh, Something that I personally have started to appreciate more is that when a director has a style, it's like Wes right, Anderson. Right, right, like if right. you like Wes Anderson, yeah. you generally like Wes you know, Anderson, or he will surprise you. Yes, and and when we started Zach on film, I think you were big on Wes Anderson. Uh, no, Probably I mean, more I've, so than I've, I was. I've watched at that point. I probably watched two of his films. I was not because yeah. I watched. Um, I was really many many years ago. I watched uh, the uh, Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, Tenenbaums, and I was like, "eh, it's okay." Mm-hmm. And then I watched the um, Aquatic Life. Aquatic Life, and I was yeah. like, "this is crap." <laughs> but you kept going on and on, and I was like, "okay, let me give it another try." Yeah. And I and then I watched the uh, uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, it's like okay, that's really good. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when Grand Budapest Hotel came out, I was like, "okay, I'll 
give this and then by the end of that i was like i'm kind of a yeah. fan of 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 his have, have you watched the curious case of mr fox no i haven't his, that's the animated his one, anim- right? his stop yeah. motion one yeah yeah that's the first one i ever saw okay yeah i've seen bits and pieces of it so so i've i've gotten something yeah. out of this too in our interactions where you're like steven you got to watch this mm-hmm. i think you're the one that convinced me to watch her yeah um and i really got a kick out yeah. of that and um, i mean these are all things we can get into when we watch tree of life but yeah, that yeah. movie was important to me uh, oh yeah, save that. On a I was story just giving, I was just giving people yeah, 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 a, a, a little fine. heads up. The, yeah. the, the new trailer that came out, which I literally the day after, literally the day after I watched Tree of Life, I was yeah. like, oh well, okay. Then we'll we'll definitely need to talk about it. I hope it's on Zach's list. Yeah, it is. So and then after that, um, something different will come. So something we, different is happening. Yeah, I think it's going to be good, right? I'm really excited the, about it. I've yet to hear the test piece. The test piece doesn't have happened yet. Which was, okay. this would be a good one to do it. Um, yeah, it would be. But. So it, it'll be different. Okay. But Zach on film, yes, the we'll podcast the feed is happening. Yes. Still. All right. All right, Zach, take yeah, it out that's going to be the it for this episode of Zach on Film. Head over to Majorspoilers.com where you can find this podcast posting page and give any of your thoughts about anything we have discussed about Susan Kane or uh, what we have talked about with uh, what Zach on Film has meant to me. Give uh, your ideas and thoughts about how uh, this series has maybe changed the way you're looking at films or... Any highlights that you've had so far? While you're there, click on Amazon.com link on the front page. You can do all of your shopping. It's not going to cost you any extra, but a little bit will come back to Major Spoilers to just cover some costs of the upkeep of the website. So uh, next time, we will be talking one of my films on Zach on Film. Summer camp is a magic place where kids discover who they are because they have the freedom to explore on their own. Why Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is a sleepaway camp in the heart of Idaho's wilderness. Each summer, campers make friends, build new skills, and learn to love the outdoors through activities like canoeing, archery, zip lining, rock climbing, campfires, and more. Registration for Why Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is open. Financial assistance is available. Learn more at whycampidaho.org. Hey, Houston. Con's prices are invincible. That means prices have been cut low, as in amazingly low, as in won't be beat. In fact, we're backing it up with our low price guarantee. Invincible prices on appliances, furniture, electronics, mattresses, and more. Not invincible enough for you? How about free next day delivery on appliances, TVs, and mattresses? And payment options for everyone, whether you have good credit or building it. Visit Con's today and find out what invincible feels like.